Neighbor, I heard about your heresy, and we've made it our mission to win you back to the flock. No sale. Homer, Christian life isn't all praying and sacrifice. Hey, dig this. Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. And I'm Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So Lucas, how's it going, man? I know we always say it feels like it's been a while, but like it always does feel like it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, a lot, ha- a lot happens in a week. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, we've sort of settled into a, a once a week or once or twice a week recording routine, but I mean, I guess we've always had that, but it just feels a little different now. It does feel different. There's just more going on in between, I guess, but yeah, no, things have been good. Um, had a nice long weekend, so was kind of able to recharge a bit, you know, not not be so cramped for time to finish all my readings and lectures and stuff, but Do you remember yeah, that VeggieTale was... episode? Did you, did you ever watch VeggieTales when you were a kid? I did. Not did as much where, like, as most of my asparagus peers. thinks that like that that one dude's a robot because he says he needs to go home and recharge his batteries no i no. don't but that sounds like a spongebob episode that i love so <laughs> classic anyway sorry yeah no i mean it's been it's been good chill the weather's been not too hot here not quite fall cold for me um it's been in like the 70s to low 80s <laughs> oh my gosh. but so it feels nice 40s and 50s here yeah, it feels nice because it's not been in the 80s and 90s, mm. but it it feels like September, maybe end of August weather. It doesn't feel like mid-October weather, which is pretty wild to look at the date and realize it's it's uh, the middle of October, which is, I mean, this fall is really flying by for me. Seriously. I don't know about you guys, but... <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I mean, Halloween's in two weeks, Reformation Day. Reformation this time last Day, year, yeah. we were like just getting ready to move into this apartment and the day we moved in, it was a Saturday. The next day snowed. Um, oh, man. And, like, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that doesn't do that this year, that we just have, like, a normal fall, I guess, with COVID <laughs> in place. So maybe it's not a normal fall, but I don't know. We at were least just at weather-wise. Our, yeah, at least weather-wise. But we were, we were just at my in-laws and um, Hannah's brothers. We were uh, playing catch out in the little they – like they live in a circle, like a cul-de-sac. Oh, they never nice. Cul-de-sac. Um, and we were playing catch, and it's like I don't. When I used to play football, I used to love playing in the actual fall because you know practice starts in August when it's like 80s and 90s, and it's like brutal. But then once you get into September, October, it's the best football weather, and it was just I don't know. It's a lot of fun, and they're getting really good at football too. It's not just like nice. standing two feet away, like underhanding mm-hmm. it. It's I can give it some heat, and they sometimes catch it. <laughs> How old are they now? Um, ten and eleven, I think nice yeah 10 11 that's really cool yeah that's awesome it's so cool to be close to family like we're not anymore but Mm. we have been for the last year so i mean a little too close maybe (laughs) (laughs) i'm kidding i'm kidding but um but yeah no that's 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 a blessing so yeah sweet yeah well are you ready to jump into the 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 waters of heresy once again (sighs) they're my favorite waters to tread so let's do it (laughs) So today, on this fine Tuesday episode, we're going to be talking about Christological heresies. So technically, this is a 
you know, this is a good deal because you're getting more than one heresy for the price of nothing because this is a <laughs> podcast. But um, Christological heresies, uh, which is a big fancy word for um, the theology of Christ, we could say. What, what, when, when we're doing theology and we're speaking about Jesus Christ, about who he is, about how we talk about him, what he's done, what he is in his nature or natures, as will become very important during the course of today's conversation, this all falls under the, the category in theology of Christology, which kind of makes sense, you know, ology, like you're studying something, Christ, put him together. I think it kind of, it's, it's a big fancy word, but I think it kind of makes sense. Um, and as might be sort of obvious, but, but might also not be if it's not something you've, you've ever thought about before, um, Christology is sort of the central question, or at least it concerns the, the central questions of our faith, right? Yeah, where, it's a pretty big where, deal. <laughs> we're Christians, you know, we follow Christ. So it seems logical, I would say, that the, the theology about Christ would be at the very top of the list in terms of important, big deal topics, you know? I mean, if you hear, the, if you hear some of the names that we're going to talk about, if you hear, you know, just for example, Apollinarianism, if you hear that word, you might be like, who cares? It's just a big fancy theological word. But when you learn what it is, and then when you learn about the implications, it has like pretty staggering implications for our faith, for our practice, for who Christ is, for what he accomplished in his work. What does his death, burial, and resurrection mean for us today? I mean, there, it's not just like, oh, you know, you can take it or leave it. These, these are pretty foundational truths that ought to be confessed, as, as you're saying. Oh, big time. So that's, you know, because it's so important, we wanted to spend one of our um, heresy weeks <laughs> discussing some of the big heresies that the church has grappled with when it comes to um, the study of Christ, when it comes to our theology about our Lord. And because they're so important, it's worth diving into a few of the big ones, not just honing in on one important one um, or just picking one at random or, or anything like that. So, oh, and I want to also make note before we really get into it. Um, it, like you, you kind of mentioned it, it might sound like sort of this esoteric, you know, academic discussion of history that doesn't necessarily matter today. Um, but in addition to the implications that it has for that, these heresies have for our faith itself, they also, you know, impact and sort of rear their ugly heads again in some surprising places that we might, you know, mention a little bit throughout and kind of discuss at the end that might seem a little more directly relevant. But um, before we do that, before we get into these heresies, I wanted to lay a little bit of groundwork of what we're talking about when we're talking about Christology and sort of the... the the trajectory of the development of Christology. So what was the church thinking about and talking about and doing in this area of theology up to the point where these heresies emerged? Because I think it, it will make it way easier to understand the problems with these different heretical views when we understand the context of what was happening 
prior to their emergence, if that makes sense. Um, so I don't know if you have anything else by way of introduction that you think is important to hit, or if you want to kind of just jump into it and, and get rolling. No, I, I, I don't think I have anything to add. So yeah, feel free to jump right in the deep end. Cool. So we've already kind of mentioned a little bit like when we say Christology, we mean theology about Christ. And that, that can really fall fall into any category of something we're talking about Christ. You know, when we're talking about his incarnation, when we're talking about uh, the virgin birth, when we're talking about uh, the, the atonement and his death on the cross, when we're talking about his miracles, all that kind of stuff. One of the big important features of Christology that was always the main question all the way back to the earliest Christian writers after the New Testament, when we're talking about doing theology about Jesus, the big question is, who is Jesus? And the short answer is, he is God incarnate as a human. But that immediately leads to some big questions about what does it mean for Jesus to be God and man? How can Jesus be fully divine and fully human? Because that's what the church confesses. That's what the Holy Scriptures teach and, has, and the church has always held to. But then you have to ask, what does that mean? What does that look like? What is that, you know, how, how do we explain that? Because it's a pretty, uh, you know, it's a pretty difficult thing to sort of wrap your mind around. Um, one uh, person, one being, having both fully divine and fully human natures at the same time and, and even in that, it's just there are so many terms to define and all that kind of stuff. So that was always the central question, and that kind of needs to be the the question that frames what we're talking about when we're looking into these heresies, I think. And a big piece of that question is this idea of another big theological word, this idea of consubstantiality. So consubstantial, um, substance, think, and and con meaning with. So, sub, sub, you know, substantial with having the same substance as two things that are consubstantial are two things that, that share a substance. They share a nature. They share uh, the, 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 the stuff that they're made of, if that makes sense. Um, we've talked a little bit about substance before when we, a few weeks ago when we talked about um, the, the Roman view of transubstantiation in the, the Lord's Supper. And so there's a similar idea here where we're talking about the nature, the, the fundamental nature of what a thing is. And in relation to Christ and Christology specifically, we're looking at the idea of divine nature, you know, so the, the, the substance that God has, and human nature, the substance that, that we have. Um, and the important question that people are trying to explore and answer is Jesus is God, Jesus is man. What does that mean? And one of the important pieces of that is how do we say or do we say that Jesus is consubstantial with God and or man? Do we want to say, and if we do, then how do we say that Jesus shares the substance or the nature that God has or that humanity has? Or both, or neither. And these are sort of the questions that, that people are wrestling with in the first um, couple centuries of church history. And 
These questions are also related to the doctrine of the Trinity, which we're not going to get into. But over the course of the first 200 or so years of church history, people are trying to articulate the Trinity. And that leads to a couple of, of false views of the Trinity that um, come to be named as heresies. And while these are technically Trinitarian heresies and they're not the ones we're talking about today, I wanted to bring them up, not to muddy the waters, but because they have, they have implications for who Jesus is. And so those are adoptionism and modalism. So adoptionism is basically the idea that um, Jesus is not divine, or at least not fully or truly divine in the sense that he is eternally God. But he was or is a, a man who at some point was chosen by God and adopted as the son of God. Um, and, you know, maybe he was made divine or maybe he just gained a lot of, you know, favor with God or however you want to articulate it. That's the idea. So that is a response to early attempts to explain the Trinity. It's not, it's not directly trying to answer the question about Jesus, but obviously it is very important for who Jesus is if you say he was a man who was adopted. Similarly, modalism was a heresy that was trying to answer questions about the Trinity, um, and it states that there's only one God who puts on these different personas, these different masks, depending on what he's doing. And those masks are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in creation, he's wearing his Father mask because he's God the Father, the Creator, the Almighty. Uh, in salvation, when he comes to earth, he puts on his Son mask because he's Jesus, the Son of God, come to save mankind. And you kind of get the idea. So... Both of these heresies were really big deals that the church addressed and, and condemned as heresies about the Trinity. But these, I wanted to bring them up, like I said, because they, they have implications for who Jesus is, and they have sort of echoes that I think we can hear in later heresies that are directly Christological. So I feel like that was kind of a long-winded, you know, intro kind of, kind of section um, I know it's not like this is a classroom or, or, you know, a group gathering where if what I said was totally confusing, people can, you know, stop me. Um, I don't <laughs> know if back. you have they any rewind. That's true. That's true. Cause I'm sure, I'm sure it's their fault if they misunderstood me, not mine. <laughs> um, is there anything that you feel like I, I missed or could maybe clarify that might be helpful? Um, I don't no, want to spend I mean, too much time on this section, right. this no, section, you did a, but a really good job. I, I the only thing I'll say is uh, I think for most of these things the the there it was a noble effort like imagine being a Christian who you know especially if you were a Jewish Christian who has sort of always lived with this idea that like you know be uh you know hero Israel the Lord your God the Lord is one um you know we worship one God um and the, so yeah to try to understand how how does this one God how can how can there be father son spirit how does how is their unity amongst triunity? Um, yeah, so so those those early Trinitarian heresies, as you said, were weren't necessarily people trying to be malicious, but they were trying to understand who God was and how He was expressed in a triune way. And that word wasn't even used until until later, of course. But as we sort of transition to Christological heresies. Again, I think at least for many of them, they had noble aspirations in wanting to, 
define and defend how God can be both man and God? Like, how does, how does that union take place? How does, how, how can, how can that be? And so that's sort of the groundwork for understanding. Cause I don't, I, I, you know, I think sometimes when we hear the word heresy, we can just think like malicious, evil, uh, reject it. But really, I mean, this, these were just people trying to put words to, you know, very limited human capacity they wanted to put those things to a transcendent God. And of course, as you do so, people are like, well, this is incorrect and, you know, thus labeled heresy. And I think there are definitely ways in which that there were people who were more, you know, sinister perhaps. Um, and especially after being condemned and, you know, being told that this view is heretical, if you still continue to be a proponent of it, that's a different story. Um, I don't know. I thought that was at least worth mentioning as we as we journey into these things to maybe give the benefit of the doubt and some grace to, you know, again, people who are really trying to pave the road for understanding our, our Savior. Yeah. And I think that's a good note to hit before we dive into to a few. So there, there are three main historical heresies we're going to mention today. At least I think it's three, if I can count. Um, and so, yeah. I th- the way that I'm that I've got them laid out, I think, is a little bit out of order um, uh, chronologically, um, but to me makes a little more sense uh, conceptually. So um, the first one I want to talk about is Eutychianism, um, which was um, it gets its name from the guy who kind of. Uh, promulgated it, who was an old monk named Eutyches. So we have Eutychianism. Um, I would say um, to, you know, that's that that's fine. Some old Greek guy's name that is hard to remember that, you know, we probably never heard of before. That's fine. I would also just sort of mentally link this with the term monophysitism. Monophysitism, which means one nature in Greek. Um, so this is the idea that in Christ, in the incarnation, you know, so we have the word become flesh, there is a divine and a human nature present, but in a Eutychian framework, a mono, a monophysite framework, you have the divine and human natures being sort of mixed together in such a way where the human nature is utterly swallowed up by the divine. Um, I believe Eutyches himself used this analogy, um, but if not, it, 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 even if he didn't, it's, it's a really good analogy to get across the idea. It, the, the human nature is like a drop of wine, like a single drop of wine in the ocean of the divine nature. So yes, there is a human nature, you know, there is a drop of wine in that ocean. But when you really get down to it, if you put one drop of wine in the ocean, you really just have the ocean. That drop of wine no longer exists in any meaningful way, um, that it's still distinct, You can, that you can still point to it, or that it still really has any functional existence. Um, sort of the, the most, you know, sympathetic sort of, likely way that Eutychius or Eutyches kind of got to this conclusion is that he 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 may have been basically inspired by the idea that that Christ's human body is 
is deified. Um, we've talked about theosis. Christ is sort of the archetype of that in, in, his, hum, in his humanity being deified in the incarnation. Um, and there's this idea, I don't remember if we talked about it at any other previous episode, but there's this idea called the communication of idioms where the divine and the human nature in Christ, because they're linked together, they sort of communicate with each other. So, so even though Christ is God, in the incarnation, he's hungry because the, the, the human nature sort of communicates that to him. And even though Christ is a human in the incarnation, he can walk on water because he's also God. And so there's this back and forth where Christ is able to do human things in his divine nature, or, or you know, Christ is a divine person who's able to do human things, and, and, he, and he's in his human nature able to do some divine things. So Eutyches kind of took that to the extreme, and he's saying that the divine nature communicates all of its properties to the human nature in this huge way that basically just, like I said, swallows up the human nature completely. And we basically no longer have two natures brought together. We have one nature, which is why we want to call it monophysitism, one nature. Um, that is sort of the gist of Eutychianism. And there, there he... Eutyches isn't the only monophysite in history, um, but he is sort of the, the I would say, like the archetypal um, model of what, it, of what it means to advocate for, for a monophysite view of Christ's incarnation. Um, a really, really helpful tool for pushing back against this idea is what's called the Chalcedonian definition. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is such a... I, I'm sorry for this episode. Like I'm, I'm all, I'm jazzed about this episode, but I realize like every sentence has this like technical term that if you've never heard before, you're gonna be like, what? But um, the 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 Council of Chalcedon was a church council where the church got together to to discuss these questions about about Jesus's incarnation and his natures. And one of the things they produced is this um, this definition, which kind of provides the the fences and the boundaries for talking about um, the two natures in the incarnation Um, uh, for, for most, most Christians in the world and throughout history have subscribed to um, Chalcedon, not all, but that might be an episode for another day. Um, But that definition is that the two natures, Christ's human nature and divine nature come together without confusion, without change, without division and without separation. So we can see how Eutyches kind of messes um, the first two up without confusion and without change. He's so concerned about the two natures coming together that they get confused and muddled together. They, they mingle to the point where you can't separate them anymore. And, um, they, and the human nature completely changes into something that's just divine. Yeah. Um, so so that's, you don't mind, that's... I was going to read... I, I forgot that you might just mention it, but I thought we'd read the Chalcedonian definition yeah. as just, yeah. you know, because be it, it's short. It's not super long. So uh, it says, following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and a body consubstantial with the father as regards his divinity and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity. 
like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, <clears throat> acknowledged in two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same, only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers was handed down to us. So that's, you know, Amen. pretty solid. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I hope you memorized that because it's going <laughs> to it's gonna be helpful with all It'll of these. It'll be on the now. quiz next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, that's Monophysitism, that's Eutychianism. Um, and I want to move from that to a similar but, but different um, way of thinking about Christ that's heretical um, called Apollinarianism. You mentioned this in the, in the intro. Um, this gets its name from Apollinarius, who was the Bishop of Laodicea, I believe, um, that city that's mentioned a few times in the, in the New Testament. Um, but he, the, the way that I remember this one is the way that uh, Dr. Clark at Moody taught it in my Sistheo class that I will never be able to forget um, that this is God in a bod. <laughs> Um, which <laughs> it's funny because in a sense, Jesus is God in a bod, but what it means by this is not that God now has a body in Jesus. Um, but what it means is that God is sort of operating a human body as a pilot. I, I almost think of like, um, that episode of SpongeBob again comes up when Plankton gets into SpongeBob's head <laughs> Literally, like he climbs into his head and attaches a little device to his brain, and he like controls him yep. and like t to go steal the formula. Of um, course, but um, Apollinarius wasn't saying that a little green guy was controlling Jesus's body. But what he was <laughs> saying is that um, Jesus didn't have a human rational soul. Instead. The Logos, you know, from, from John 1, in the beginning was the Word. Um, the Word of God filled, basically took the place of a soul um, in, in a human body. So Jesus had a, you know, he had a real human body. He had real human um, you know, flesh. He had a real human nature, except he didn't have a real human soul. And um, the, you know... The idea of this, like with a lot of these, the idea is, is, is to sort of protect the, the holiness of God, protect the nature of God being distinct from the, the nature of, of man, which we'll talk a little bit more with our, with our third and our big um, her you know, capital H heresy. But, um, but basically, the, the issue with this is this means that you don't have a full incarnation because human beings have bodies, but they also have souls. So if Jesus didn't take on a human soul then he, he isn't really fully human and he hasn't really fully incarnated into humanity to save humanity. Um, 
the 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 Cappadocian father Gregory of Nazianzus Nat <laughs> Nazianzus um, kind of uh, repudiated this heresy with the idea that what is not assumed in the incarnation, what is not taken on by Jesus, what is not assumed is not healed. So if Jesus comes but not with a human soul, that's great for my body, but it doesn't help my soul, mm. and my soul needs saving just as much as my body does. So because of that this view of Apollinarianism just kind of falls flat. Right. And, um, and like, again, kind of like I mentioned in the beginning, good, good motives a little bit. I mean, he, since Jesus was human. So if, if we're going to say that Jesus was a human, he, his reasoning was that basically like he must've sinned because he's a human. There's no way a human can't sin. Um, and a sinful nature, you know, could not share the same body as a divine nature. And this was kind of like his thinking, trying to like, think through how man and God can, can share a, you know, a, a, a body. And so that's the way to kind of like overcome this problem, you know, quote unquote, was to basically say that like the logos, like you said, came upon Jesus kind of replacing his human mind, rational nature with God's and overcoming, overwhelming his sinful inherent quote unquote human nature. Um, which I think is really interesting. Again, like we we have the benefit of two thousand years of church history, like having theologians and pastors and people who have thought about these things for for centuries. And if you imagine these people in the two hundreds, three hundreds, four hundreds, just not far removed from Christ, some of the confusion, some of the misunderstandings, some of the you know information didn't travel as quickly as it travels now. You know, you know Apollinaris and you know, anybody of all of his buddies, they couldn't just FaceTime each other across the country and chat about theology. And so that's why, you know, these things sort of developed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, very, in a similar way to, uh, Eutyches and then also the, the, the next one we're going to talk about, um, what, what you end up with is just, an insufficient incarnation, um, which that I don't. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first one to say that, but it has a nice ring to it, I guess. <laughs> but um, the the incarnation is basically not good enough because, like I said, it's great for my body, it's not great for my soul. Or with with Eutyches and and him basically not, you know, his human nature not being, um, not really remaining anymore when it's joined to the divine. It's like, well, what about me? Because I still have my human human nature that that I need to be saved. And, and the, the principle of what is not assumed is not healed has come to really define um, orthodox Christological reflection. And, and this is really where it comes from, is this idea that there's a division between the, the human body and the, the divine logos in the person of Jesus um, that, you, that, not you, uh, Apollinarius had that. Right. The, the god in a bod, you know, plankton right. in SpongeBob's and, brain, however you want to remember it. And, like, to put it, like, in real easy-to-understand terms, I mean, if if this is if this was true, we, we don't have a Savior who can sympathize with us when we are tempted. We don't have someone who's able to, you know, understand when we suffer temptation, when we just plainly suffer, um, because if Jesus isn't truly human, just like, you know, Greg of Naz would say, you know, what was not assumed cannot be healed. And, you know, this compromises the atonement. Um, 
you know, really we, what power does Jesus have to sympathize with us in our weaknesses if he was not like us in his humanity at the end of the day? Yeah. And this might be a, before we jump into the third and final heresy, this might be a good point to, to emphasize. We, we, we talked about sort of the implications of these heresies being a lot more significant than they might sound when you just hear, Oh, one, one nature or no human rational soul of Jesus, you know, like, like the, the implications literally come down to whether or not humanity is saved Mm. by Jesus. It's literally a matter of salvation because like has hopefully sort of been made at least somewhat clear when you have this, these faulty views of the incarnation that insufficiency translates to, oh, well, Jesus can save my body, but he can't save my rational soul. Or, you know, Je- you know Jesus is God, but, but how is he human? How, how can he save me? How can he be a sacrifice on my behalf if he's only God and not human? Um, and so if you undermine the incarnation, if you undermine the way that the incarnation happened, the way that Jesus' divine and human natures interact with each other, that means you're undermining our faith in, in our salvation. Everything. I mean, if <laughs> oh. basically if, if like Jesus doesn't possess a human soul, then he's not truly human and thus cannot atone for the sins of humans. And so like it, it's a moot point. It's like a cow's opinion, yeah. basically, you know, <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> like matter. There, it doesn't matter that he came cause he didn't actually accomplish anything. So like that's yeah. At the end of the day. Right. Yeah. And, and I just want to really make sure that that makes sense. Um, because if Jesus is God, that means that he is able, he is able to save us because he's God. If Jesus is, is human, that means he's able to save us, if that makes sense, that kind of, that emphasis. Jesus is able to save us because he's God, and he's able to save us because he's a human. He's not just God. He, he is able to be that unblemished sacrifice the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world on our behalf once and for all precisely because he actually is human and he's able to do that in a way that is uh, effective precisely because he actually is god um and also like i I, you know i mentioned last week that i've been reading matt emerson's book on the descent into hell mm -hmm. um you know it, it would undermine the descent it would undermine the apostles creed it would I mean, like we've already said, so like to keep beating this dead horse is like it undermines our entire faith. If Jesus right. is not like us, then he cannot do anything to help us. Yeah. So let's get to the big... <laughs> Sorry, horse. The, the, uh, the, the underminer himself, the, that arch heretic of, of Christological heresies. When we had the idea for Heresy Month, I thought it was a good idea so that I would get to talk about this guy. <laughs> so this is um, this is the the crux of the month. This is this at least for me. We'll the see reason if for anybody the season, else as you agrees. Could say. Yeah, the re- <laughs> <laughs> Um so we're going to talk about Nestorianism. So Nestorius is, is is the guy who we get the name Nestorianism from. Um I'm going to save talking about him for later. Um, spoiler alert he, he's going to be the heretic of history for friday but I, I i don't want to spoil Open it but bombs. i don't i don't want to also spend time talking about him now <laughs> since we're going to talk yeah. about him later so there you go Fair so Nestor, nestorianism 
Um, you know, before we kind of talked about with Eutychianism, you can kind of think of one nature, that idea. Um, with Apollinarianism, you can think of God in a bod. Um, with Nestorianism, you can kind of think of the idea of a conjunction instead of a union, which I will explain, but just I wanted to say that at the outset. Nestorianism, you have conjunction, not union. So the sort of the catalyst for this debate for, for Nestorius's ideas come from the idea that Mary, the Virgin Mary, could not be the bearer of God, could not be the God bearer, which you might have caught um, was a term that was used in um, the Chalcedonian definition. Um, that was actually directly to condemn Nestorianism. Um, they, 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 they throw so, in that shade real hard. Yeah. That um, God bearer um, in Greek, that's Theotokos, um, which just means God bearer, which is a term, sort of a title that came to be applied to, to, to Mary. Um, and it is the idea that she gave birth to Jesus, who was God. She bore God. Um, so Nestorius had a problem with the term Theotokos because he said that God, you know, God is eternal. God is divine. He, he can't have a mother. He can't be born. That if you if you if you speak in that way, you're you're sort of denigrating the divine nature. You're 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 implying that um, his nature underwent some kind of a change because he was born. Um, you're saying that Mary is like somehow the origin of of God. Um, these were the ideas, and and so instead we can say that Mary was the Christ bearer, the Christotakos, um, because Mary bore Jesus, who was the Christ, the anointed one. Um, and this, you know, coming out with this idea was what sort of sparked the controversy over his, his theology. Um, and that's precisely like we've been saying, because when you get wonky on Jesus, you get wonky on everything else, and, and ultimately you lose the faith. Um, so Nestorianism was or is, maybe, uh, but what was concerned with maintaining and properly identifying the difference and the distinction between humanity and divinity, between the creature and the creator, which is a great thing. The, the, <laughs> the distinction between creature and creator is really important. Um, if you don't have that, you get pantheism, where everything just is God, um, which is clearly not the... the uh, the, the way of looking at the world that we get from scripture because we have a God who is outside of creation who creates, not a God who is dependent on his creation or is a part of his creation. Um, and it's, it is important to maintain that distinction, creator, creature, creature, creator. They're not the same thing. They're different. Um, but Nestorianism kind of takes this concern and runs with it to a degree um, that it, it like we said, undermines the, the incarnation. So um, quoting, quoting the, the scholar and, and Orthodox priest John McGuckin, um, language about the incarnation had to retain a primary sense of the difference between deity and humanity. So this is what Nestorian, Nestorianism is concerned with. Um, 
both that distance between God and his creatures in a, in a general sense, and also the, the, um, the distance between the divine and human aspects of the Christ. Once language had established these respective differences, the Christian mind could appreciate the closeness of a God who, in the person of Jesus Christ, entered into association with humankind. This is that idea of conjunction instead of union. He's associated with us. God and the creature were radically different. Jesus was fully human in every respect, including human limitations of consciousness, psychology, and power, while the divine Logos was fully God, untrammeled by the human body of Jesus. The human life of Jesus was something the Logos was in communion with, not one that dominated or subjugated him in any way. So what we see in this quote is this this distance, this separation, remember the, the Chalcedonian definition, between the person Jesus and the divine Logos. Nestorianism, Nestorianism is able to speak of these as two different people almost, two different entities, the Logos and Jesus. Instead of being, you know, Jesus, the incarnate Logos, you have the Logos is in communion with the man Jesus. Um, so there's, there's, the big problem is there's this, there's this separation in the divine and the human. Not in the sense of humanity is different than divinity, but in the sense of in Jesus Christ himself, the Logos and the human are not united together they are just in an association with each other. God gets really close to us, but ultimately he doesn't, he doesn't enter into our, our humanity, if that makes sense. So this leads back to the question about Mary. When, when we say that Mary can't bear God, um, we're not actually talking about who Mary is. We're saying something about who Jesus is, which is why this is such a big deal. Because um, if we say, oh, well, okay, Mary bore Jesus. But you can't say that Mary bore God. That means that, at least in some sense, you're, you're saying Jesus isn't God. You're driving a wedge between um, the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. That, that wedge which should never be there. And we see that in, in the way that um, uh, John McGuckin explained the Nestorian position. So sort of as a response to this, I just want to quote from my boy, Serial... Serial... <laughs> Cyril of Alexandria, um, he was uh, sort of the main opponent of Nestorianism and the um, sort of the, the pillar of orthodoxy, as he is, is uh, uh, known. Um, I think in, in, in the Orthodox Church, he, he has a, there's a hymn for him on his feast day, and I, I think it calls him like that warrior of orthodoxy, defender of the incarnation, or, or something like that, which is just a super rad title to have people singing about you. I mean, yeah, I probably would never earn such a title, but it is pretty rad. Um, so uh, Cyril writes a really, really big, uh, not big in the sense of long, but a really important work um, that sort of presents his objections to Nestorianism. It's called On the Unity of Christ. Highly recommend you pick it up. It's written in a like question and answer, like a back and forth between two people. Um, so it's a little confusing to read out loud, but um, I wanted to just quote this, these couple sentences. Um, so Cyril says, 
whom should we then take as the first fruits of this process, meaning our adoption as children of God by the Spirit? Who, in short, would bring this dignity to us? So who who brings us? Who's the first fruits? Who allows us to be adopted as children of God? And then the response is, I'm sure that even the Nestorians would say it was the word made man. And then Cyril responds back, but how could that be the case unless he himself became flesh, that is, became man, appropriating a human body to himself in such an indissoluble union that it is to be considered as his very own body and no one else's, end quote. So what he's getting at here is the union. He's not saying Jesus isn't divine. He's not saying that Jesus' divinity gets sort of squished out by the humanity. What he's doing is saying that the divine logos, the word made flesh, is actually the word made flesh. The word himself, the the second person of the Trinity, actually has his own human body. And that is why, like we've been saying, he is able to save our human bodies. He's able to bring us, you know, he is the first fruits of our resurrection, as Paul says. And he brings us, you know, as fallen humans, he brings us through his resurrection into adoption as sons of God by the Spirit. Um, And that is why Nestorianism is a problem is because you have this wedge between the two natures in such a way that unlike some of the other heresies before Nestorianism, um, you still have a human and a divine nature present, Hmm. Um, you know, unlike Eutychianism or, or something like that. Um, But you, you don't have them together. You have to go back to Chalcedon you don't have them without division or without separation. They're divided and separated. And ultimately, that still means your incarnation doesn't, doesn't quite get all the way to where Scripture presents Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection and a, the Word made flesh. Not the Word connected to flesh or the Word attached to flesh, but He's the Word made flesh. He is the actual Word of God who was born to the woman Mary and lived a human life and died in his human flesh and was raised in his human flesh and sits in his human flesh at the right <laughs> hand of the Father. And you don't have that if you have Nestorianism or if you have these other heresies that are that are basically different angles of looking at it um, in a way that doesn't quite do justice to the whole. Right. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking like as yeah. somebody who I, I preached through hebrews one time and i'm just thinking of all of the imagery and all the language that the author of hebrews uses talking about a great high priest um and when we think about jesus as our our great high priest and as the the good shepherd and as the sacrificial lamb um like those things can't be true and can't exist i mean especially the high priest thing like where there's the the intermediary between god and man in his human body he is god and man he is the the once and for all sacrifice not the one who not not just the one who's making the sacrifice uh, as an animal but like sacrificing himself and so yeah a, a, a simply a human person who has just a human nature can really save no one maybe himself but th- that's why he has to be both god and man yeah 
Yeah. So those are the, what I would say at least, are the pretty much the, the, the most important heresies. There, there are obviously others that, that we didn't talk about that at the end of the day are, are they're, they're not as important because these three kind of represent three different types of, of approaches, I think. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that that'll, that'll do it as far as talking about the heresies. I don't know if we wanted to like maybe take a couple minutes to talk about sort of like why this is still important to talk about today. Cause like we, we've explained what the heresies are, where they came from, when they were, you know, going around the church and we've explained why, if you believe this, you run into big theological problems and, and ultimately you can't you can't have a theology of, of salvation that's biblical. What, you, you know, what, is that, what does that have to do with us today, though? I guess would be a question that might come up. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe just a few thoughts we could, we could share on that. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, the things that, that come to mind, we've sort of at least alluded to and touched on, um, but when we think about even some of the modern expressions of these heresies, I mean, I, w- one that jumps to mind is like Jehovah's Witnesses or um, really any religion that believes Jesus was maybe just a good moral teacher who, who wasn't God. And those might be like subtle differences um, because they don't say that Jesus is both God and man just in incorrect ways. But um, again, where this crops up is when when it undermines the, the core central truths of of our faith when it when it when it diminishes if not just destroys the atonement uh, when it sacrifices ways in which jesus is able to not just be our our savior but be someone who sympathizes with us and and i don't know if i've i've kind of plugged the book before um but uh gentle and lowly um written by by dane ortland is a book that really unpacks the heart of, of Christ and, you know, in, in all the ways that Jesus could have talked about himself, you know, holy and wrathful or um, good and just or, or whatever. There's, there's tons of ways in which Jesus could have described his very heart. Um, but the way that he says, I, the way that he describes his own heart is I am gentle and lowly in heart, um, which is, mm. I think, a really powerful way in which Jesus communicates the way in which he cares for his people, not just as another human, you know, we can think of other humans who are really caring, who are really loving, but as the divine, perfect, sinless, spotless word made flesh, uh, how that God is able to love sinful humanity, a humanity that daily, hourly, minute by minute struggles with sin, struggles with doubt, struggles with uh, pain and toil and suffering. Uh, How does this eternal all good, loving God relate to his people. And if we, if we undermine the incarnation, if we undermine who Jesus is in his person, we lose the rich beauty of, I mean, that entire book, Gentle and Lowly, but we, we lose really who, who Jesus is at his very heart. Um, and really, it's, there's no other way to say it than we lose who Jesus is. We're not worshiping Jesus. We're worshiping somebody else. Yeah, that's really good. The, the only the only other thing I'll say is is you know people people haven't stopped getting Jesus wrong you know and if I don't think it 
sadly, you know, I, I don't think we would be too hard pressed if we started going to random, you know, evangelical, orthodox, you know, quote unquote, Bible believing churches around the country and started asking people um, questions about who Jesus is. We, we might be shocked how frequently we start to hear things that sound a little bit like Nestorianism, or they sound a little bit like Apollinarianism, or um, these other earlier heresies related to the Trinity, like Arianism. Um, and, and I'm not talking about in the, the churches that we think are bad theologically, or the people who aren't regular uh, church attenders and, and active uh, believing Christians. Um, the idea that these problems are behind us is, I think, really dangerous because then we kind of get complacent and aren't on the lookout for when we ourselves in our own midst start to um, talk about Jesus in ways that, that, that go against what the Bible is telling us, that doesn't capture that full, um, uh, you know, radiant gem of, of, of his incarnation and what that means, what that means for his heart, what that means for his for his uh, uh, connection to us and, and the, the work that he did on the cross and all that stuff. Um, and I just think it would be, it would, it would be really scary to forget the, the people who have gone before and made those mistakes and led people astray and, and the work that was done in the past to combat against that. If we can, if we can look at these sort of these different types of, heretical ways of talking about Jesus, we can be, I think, better prepared to be on the lookout for when that kind of stuff comes up in our own midst. Because like we said, these don't start off with evil goblins trying to manipulate, you know, poor innocent Christians. Um, These start off with, wow. Um, I don't know if you could hear that car engine revving, but it was a lot louder than (laughs) last week. Um, Anyway, Super cool, bro. Anyway, um, yeah, we we need to be on the lookout for not that we're like snooping out heresy and you know accusing people of being heretics, but I just mean if and when we come across somebody who uh, is speaking about Jesus or teaching about Jesus in a way that that is like, hmm, my my Nestorianism senses are tingling. We have a we have categories to work with and people we can go to in church history that can help us with how do we address that um, because it's been done before or at least something very similar has been done before um, and that's I think we've said it before we'll probably say it again that's a big motivation for taking the time to spend a month talking about heresies in the first place is not just to have sort of a, a um, interesting history and theology lesson although I think it is that <laughs> it's also a lot more um, when it when, when we take that knowledge and, and put it in our toolkit to help in, in, in our churches and in our, in our ministries and in our interactions with, with other Christians around us. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I, made a, I made an audible as you were wrapping up here, and I'm going to change to Psalm 90. Um, so we're going we're gonna to close with our, our, a word of prayer, and um, as we have done a couple times recently, we're going to read from the Psalms. So this is Psalm 90. And it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. You bring our years to an end like a sigh. For our years, uh, for the years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger, the uh, and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as you have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Uh, yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Thank you. And thank you for listening to today's episode of the Doxology Podcast. Um, we really appreciate it. We really appreciate the support, and uh, we're really excited about uh, continuing to, to put these together, um, and not just for the fun heresy month, but also all the other stuff we've got planned for, for afterwards. Um, if you'd like to connect with us, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Doxology Podcast or email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions, ideas for future episodes. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter to get uh, just a brief update on upcoming episodes and stuff. Uh, check out logos.com slash doxologypodcast to hear more, uh, learn more about our sponsor. Um, and uh, yeah, please hit us up. We'd love to know um, if you like what we're doing and how we can improve. So let us know. And we, we are love to hear from you and we look forward to hearing from you.